For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So, where we left off, we saw that Jesus is creating a big stir. He's a very polarizing figure, that he is somebody that people are uh, amazed at. They're amazed at his miracles. They're amazed at the way that he speaks with the authority that he speaks and the way that he's explaining who God is, the way that he talks about God's love. And so he has this way of moving toward people, and he's particularly moving toward the most immoral people in their culture and letting them know that God loves them and that they can have a relationship with God. And this is upsetting the religious authorities because they're saying, you know, well, everyone needs to be a righteous liver. And, you know, God, God hates those people, but he loves those who, who love his religion. And, and Jesus is standing against that and saying, actually, we're all sinners, all of us. And we can't earn God's love. We have to receive God's love. And then he does these incredible miracles where he causes the blind to see or he causes uh, the lame to walk. And it brings this authority to what he's saying because who can do that but God? And so if he's saying these things about who God is and then God is backing him up with these sort of miraculous events, then who is right? Is it our religious teachers who have been telling us this or is it Jesus who's claiming to be God himself. And so as people have been watching him and observing him, and as he's been interacting with these people, he's also started to get more and more clear about who he is. And in John 6, he is discussing who he is and the way to a relationship with God. And he actually proclaims that he himself is God's provision for eternal life for all people. And you could see why that would be very polarizing. He's not pointing people to God. He's pointing people to himself as God in a way that, you know, a lot of his disciples, a lot of the people that have been following him up, up to this point are like, okay, that's too far. You know, it's one thing to get up and talk about the goodness of God. It's another thing to get up and to say, I am the bread of life. Anyone who wants to know God has to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And they're like, whoa, yo, what is that about? And people start leaving. They start falling away. Because no matter what they're seeing in terms of the greatness of, of what he's doing, they're confronted with, is this a good teacher? Is this a prophet? Or is this, he's now saying and making clear that he himself is God. And so at the end of what we read two weeks ago, John 6, 66 through 69, it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus turned to the 12, the inner circle, and he said, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And this is great because Peter messes up a lot. Peter makes a lot of mistakes, but he really hits it out of the park on this one. Does a, you know, he, he just really gets 
no matter how hard it is sometimes to follow the truth, you are the truth. And where else would we go? If we want to live lives that are based on reality, that are based on what is true, we believe that you are truly from God. So we're in, we're committed. We're not going anywhere. And so we see this this time of turmoil happening where people are really being polarized. They're either accepting Jesus or they're rejecting him. And there really isn't any middle ground available. And it's because Jesus is very intentionally moving and removing the middle ground away. I am God. I am the way to salvation. I am mankind's only hope really kind of begins to eliminate that option of like, well, he's a nice guy and he's a good teacher and I like what he says, but I don't know who he is. And that's what's happening with his people. So we get to our passage this morning in John chapter 7, and we start in verse 1, and it says, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the word Jews here is just referring specifically to the religious authorities, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as he's become a more polarizing figure, and he's railed against the religious teachings of the Pharisees, they have begun to seek him out to kill him. They are polarized and they are convinced he's a fake, he's a fraud, and the answer is we got to take this guy out because he's dangerous. So Jesus is remaining a little scarce around Jerusalem and he's hanging out more in the countryside where he was born and uh, the area where people know him better and he's sort of avoiding the, uh, the hotbed of Jerusalem at this time. But we read in verse 2 that the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of, the, of Booths, was near. The Feast of Booths is sometimes referred to the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, we'll talk more about that later. So there's a big festival, and it's required that all men in, in Israel attend this festival. And his brothers said to him, let's go, let's leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see your works, which you are doing. Now this, for some people, just opens up a whole other thing of, of issue of questions where you know, Jesus had brothers. Wait, I thought Mary was a virgin, and she was a virgin her whole life. And Well, for, according to the Bible, Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus through the Holy Spirit. But then after that, she and Joseph had children. Jesus had younger brothers. And we meet some of them in, in occasions like this. And so his brothers are like, you know, we're supposed to go up to the festival, Jesus, let's go. And they say to him, no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. Jesus, stop hiding out here in Galilee and get down to Jerusalem. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. And so they themselves are like, you know, we grew up with you, you know, what brother wants to believe that their older brother is God, right? <laughs> These guys had a specific challenge, I think, that, you know, was really, would have been really hard to overcome. No matter how nice a guy your brother is, he's still your big brother. And amazingly, his brothers eventually did come to faith and did come to believe that that was exactly the case. But at this time, they're skeptical. So Jesus says to them, my time hasn't yet come, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Listen, you guys don't have the pressure on you that I have on me. Your life is not in, in threat, and 
I am going to do this in the right way, in the right timing, and this is not the right timing. So you guys go up, go to Jerusalem, go to the festival and have fun. My time has not yet come. And so he says, go to the feast. I don't go up because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So the brothers take off, and then in verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So he's kind of going up there, you know, not to make a big uh, stand and not to have this big procession, you know, but to kind of get up and get the feel for what's going on. And uh, he sends his brothers off without him. Then we start to see in this chapter uh, What's going on in Jerusalem is everybody's getting around and everybody's talking about this guy, Jesus. Everyone's like, hey, did you hear about the miracles? Did you hear, you know, about the, uh, the man by the pool of Bethesda? Did you hear he turned water into wine? Who is this person? What is it that, he, that he's about? Have you heard his teachings? Have you heard what he said to the Pharisees? Can you believe this guy? We read in verse 12, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one <coughs> was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So this is all sort of happening. You know, you see a Pharisee walk by, you don't even want them to know that you're talking about Jesus, right? But the people are, are having this debate and they're expressing, you know, this divided opinion about who this guy is. And then we read in verse 14, but it was now the midst of the feast. This feast of booze was a week-long celebration. So right in the middle of the week, Jesus gets up in the middle of the temple and begins to teach. And so, you know, the shock value here is, is, is uh, intense where, you know, everybody's like, what do you think about Jesus? Why isn't he here? And all of a sudden he stands up, you know, pulls the hood off and he's like, I'm here to tell you about God. And it's just like... Whoa, there he is. And so everyone has a theory. And we're going to summarize some of the verses here so that for the sake of time, we're just going to compress it a little bit. But everyone is, is looking at what Jesus is doing and what he's saying. And they're coming to these different conclusions. In verses 19 through 20, it says, did not Moses, uh, Jesus says to them, did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. So why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. And so we see that that was one side, one position would be, well, by the power of Satan, you're doing these things. And you've been sent by the enemy of God to taint the religion of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you're a danger to us. We read in 726 that others are saying, look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers don't really know that this is the Christ today. They're like, I thought they were trying to kill him. But here he is in the temple speaking with authority and no one's stopping him. Maybe they know something that we don't know and they actually, maybe this actually is the Messiah. And then we read in 731, it says, but many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? They're just like, what more could you expect? This guy has done, I mean, he must be the Christ. Look at what he's doing. We see those three different reactions to who he is, and he's in there interacting and, and teaching and connecting with them. And all of this is happening during the Feast of Booths, which is something that um, is an important festival in the Old Testament, but that as modern 21st century Christians, we may not know very much about this. 
And I think it's really important to understand why they're there and what is the symbolism behind this festival, this week-long thing that's happening in Jerusalem, because Jesus is definitely connecting with the symbolism of this festival. So the Jewish name uh, for the Feast of Booths is Sukkot, and it's still celebrated today in Jerusalem. And uh, we read that the Feast of Tabernacles was, set, was celebrated in autumn on the 15th day of the seventh month, according to Leviticus 23:34, which would compare roughly to the second week of October in our calendar. It began five days after the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and lasted for eight days, according to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. What would happen is, is each family would construct its own temporary shelter of branches to live in for those eight days. And so they would literally get together and get branches and sticks and create little huts. And even though they were in their town, in their own home, you would go out into the yard and you would camp out as a commemoration of the people's time in the wilderness. The, the Jewish people had spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, living in tents. And this was something that when they came to the end of that time, God said, every year I want you to camp for eight days to remember how God brought you out of slavery and how he provided for you in the wilderness. And so this is, you know, the imagery of, of the Exodus, right? Where they were following God this by a pillar of fire by day and a, or by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And he was leading them through the wilderness and the entire people were, were camping out. And he says, that's a good time. And this is a good way for us to remember that period and how God provided for us in that time. This typified the years of wandering According to Expositor's uh, commentary, this typified the years of wandering in the desert before the people entered the promised land. The feast was joyful in character, was a time of thanksgiving for the harvest that marked the transition from nomadic poverty to stable affluence in their own land. It was one of the three annual feasts at which attendance was required of all Jewish men, Deuteronomy 16.16. 16. Now, you go to Jewish sources about this, and there's, there's some good instruction in Leviticus and Deuteronomy about what to do and how to do this festival, but traditions developed in the Mishnah, which is not inside the Bible, but it's the traditions of the rabbis, about what to do and how to celebrate this, and these traditions were happening and already uh, a part of the tradition at the time of Christ. So you go to, for example, the Jewish Encyclopedia, and it explains that part of what would happen during the week, the eight days of the, the Festival of Booths, was what was called the water ritual. And every day, a priest would take a golden pitcher with three lags, was filled by a priest with water from the Pool of Shalom and then brought to the water gate. And the multitude of people would recite Isaiah 12, verse 3. And amid trumpet blasts, the water was poured simultaneously, simultaneously with a libation of wine into a tube in the altar through which it flowed, mingling with the libation of wine by underground passage into the Kidron. So there was this huge you know, thing that would happen every day. People would blow their horns, and the priests would bring this, wa this water up uh, from the Pool of Shalom, take it all the way up the temple. You know, hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of people would be watching this happen, and the priest would pour out the water. 
And everybody would be reciting this verse, Isaiah 12, verse 3. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And this was something that had developed in their tradition and was happening and is still happening today. The celebration of the water drawing, this is from the Mishnah, the celebration of the water drawing was a highlight of the feast. It was a happy, even ecstatic occasion with a torchlight parade, including musicians and priests juggling lighted torches. That sounds awesome. (laughs) And dancers and marching to the temple. At night, the whole city of Jerusalem was lit up by giant torches and the light of the giant menorahs. As the lyres and drums and cymbals and trumpets and drums and horns played, the rabbis entertained and clowned, adding to the joy. It's not the picture we really have of Pharisees and Sadducees, is it? But this is, this is, this was the appropriate response, the celebration of God's provision for his people, for the incoming of the harvest, and to remember the the future promise of the coming Messiah. So not one day of Sukkot passed without joyous festivities that celebrated the happiness of the harvest and the joy of the community. Here's a picture from 2016, a priest getting ready to do the water ceremony in Jerusalem that we were just talking about. And it's supposed to have been, this this ceremony was supposed to have been designed to really represent three distinct things according to manners and customs of the Bible. One is a memorial of the water provided for their fathers in the desert. That as they were wandering around, God kept them alive. And at one point, he, uh, he instructed Moses to strike a rock and water would pour out and keep the people alive. Two, it was a symbol of the forthcoming latter rain. It was a, a way of celebrating and saying, God, please, you know, keep our prosperity going and our crops alive. And three, it was a representation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the coming of the Messiah. That there was an understanding from the Old Testament that God said, one day I will pour my spirit out onto all people. And that this pouring out of the water was symbolic of the Holy Spirit being poured out to all. And so it's in that context then that we read in John 7, 37 to 53. This is, it tells us that it's the last day of the great day of the feast. So this is the culmination of the... um, the, the high pitch. You know, this was the most important day and everybody was crescendoing into this great celebration. And it may very well be that this event that we're looking at, it definitely happens after this water festival has happened every day. People are crying out and reciting Isaiah 12:3 every day. And it might be that while the priest is pouring out this water that Jesus says stands up in the middle of the crowd. It says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, thousands of people are are around and Jesus stands up. It says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And you can see, you know, what is the imagery that Jesus is drawing upon here? And he is pointing people to himself. Come to me, he says, and I will give you living water. And John says, but this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
But Jesus is saying, you can need to come to me if you want the Holy Spirit. So let's again, let's just look at this. Jesus is teaching in the temple. He stands up in the middle of the last day of Sukkot and declares himself the fulfillment of the festival. It says, if you're thirsty, come to me. He who believes in me. You know, and you go to the History Channel or you take a Bible is Lit class and you get this, well, you know, Jesus never really claimed to be God. And it's just so insane. The only way you could believe that is if you had no idea about what was the context in which Jesus was saying these kinds of things. And then literally they're chanting Isaiah 12, 3. And Jesus is saying, that's about salvation. That's about me. And they've been watching this water ritual happen again and again and again. And it's the final time in the eighth day. And so we read in verse 40, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, thanks. This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division breaks out in the crowd, right? And they're saying, look at what he's saying and look how it fulfills and it's consistent with what God has always told us all the way back to Moses. Look at the miracles that he does. And others are saying, well, I'm not so sure. You know, he's a, he's a Nazarite. He's from Galilee. And if you know your scripture, you know Micah 5.2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And so they knew the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, and Jesus is from the sticks. Except they don't know that Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem because of the census. And he actually fulfills that as well. So some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. No one, I mean, everyone's just trying to figure out what to do. You know, if you saw somebody heal somebody, you know, who had been born paralyzed their entire life, and then all of a sudden they could walk, it would give you a moment of pause to think about, do I want to touch that person in some kind of hostile way? He's doing that. He's standing up and he's saying, I am God. I am the way to salvation. And I am the fulfillment of all that you see in front of you. And they're like, uh, I don't think I want to arrest this guy. So the officers came to the chief priests and they said, the priests were like, where is he? Why didn't you grab Jesus? And they're like, uh, never has a man spoken the way that this man speaks. And the Pharisee says, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? You see, we're the intellectuals. We're the ones that understand the scriptures. And none of us have believed in him. So why should you? Why don't you trust in us? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. And then there's one Pharisee who we've met before who seemed to be very interested in what was going on with Jesus and who seemed pretty open-minded about there was something there so he went, had gone and he had talked to Jesus and had a very interesting conversation with him about the need to be born again, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus stands up in the middle when all of his colleagues, all of his peers, all the people whose opinions like his future is tied to, 
stands up and says, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, is it? It's like, why don't we bring Jesus here and have him make an account before us for himself? Let's go to the source and understand who this person really is. And they answered him, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. We don't need to know the facts of this man. We don't need to know what he says. We know the Bible. And of course, they're right about the Bible, but they're wrong about the facts pertaining to Jesus. And then this whole chapter just ends with, so everyone went home. (laughs) (laughs) This is so bizarre to me that, you know, all this and it's just like, everyone's like, well, we can't decide what to do. Let's just go to bed. That's what they do. So who is Jesus? What is this? You know, we can, you know, put this in this context and we can, we can begin to wrestle. We need to wrestle with the same facts, the same questions. Jesus' teachings and the things that he did are and should be as polarizing today as they were then. He does miracles. He calls people to himself. He's radically different from a prophet who's not saying, come and know God. He's saying, come and know me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the source of your salvation. And he's doing this in a way where he's absolutely intentionally driving people to one of several conclusions. He stands up and says, I am the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, the one you read about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We know that he is also from Bethlehem. And it's amazing, isn't it? If you think about this, here's here's one of the things that we could really get down into is thinking about the lengths that God will go to seek us out and to give us confidence in who he is. If nothing else, when you read a gospel, you're trying to figure out the character and the nature of the God of the universe. You're trying to understand who is God. And what we see is God works through hundreds of people over thousands of years to record these pieces, to put these symbols together, to teach, and then he has them doing the ceremony every year for hundreds of years, reciting Isaiah 12.3, watching the water pour out, remembering the living in a booth and remembering the time of the Exodus, remembering and celebrating the provision of God. And then all these things come together, not just here. This is just one time of many times where we see the whole arc of human history coming together and pointing to the significance of the identity of this person. Why does God go that far to give us that kind of confidence? Paul would write in 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man the man, Jesus Christ. See, he's saying that God wants each and every one of us to be in a relationship with him. 
And God literally could not do more over the span of human history to lead us to this conclusion and to force us to wrestle with this question. Who is Jesus Christ? From the biblical perspective, it is the most important question. If there is nothing else that you wrestle with in your life, wrestle with this and be well informed. Don't just take, you know, the peripheral, well, you know, some people think this and some people think that. And, you know, there's all these contradictions in the Bible. It's like, well, show me the contradictions and pursue those questions and look for answers and come to a definitive conclusion based on the information, the vast amount of information that's available because God has done so much to give us that confidence. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's so interesting. That God, you know, a lot of times people, when you talk about this stuff, they come up with a problem of evil, right? And they're like, oh, if God's so big and so powerful and so good, then why is there evil in the world? Because if he was good, he would want to do something about it. And if he was powerful, he could do something about it. I was watching recently some videos from Neil deGrasse Tyson, Right? And he, this comes up from time to time. What are his spiritual beliefs? And he says, you know, he's basically an agnostic, a skeptic. And his main reason that he cites over and over and over again in different interviews is the problem of evil. But we have the answer to the problem of evil right now, right here. The Lord is waiting to destroy all evil because we fall in that category. And if he just wiped out all evil from the earth, it would include all of us. And so he's patient in the hopes that we would examine the evidence, look at the truth, and accept that we need forgiveness that can only come through Jesus Christ. And that's his desire, that's what he wants is for all of us to come to know him. And he has provided so much fabulous evidence of that truth. And when you look at Jesus like we are, as we study through this gospel, you have to admit, if you're honest with yourself, Jesus doesn't leave middle ground. Yes, it's very popular to say, well, you know, he's not you know, the only son of God, we're all the sons of God. Or to say, you know, well, he, you know, he had many wonderful things to say that we, should be, that we should be respectful of. He was a very wise teacher. And that really isn't something, if you look at his teachings, that you can do. He doesn't permit that. Because of what he says and what he does. You can't not be God incarnate and claim to be God incarnate and be a good teacher. It's, it's a big problem. You can't claim to be the fulfillment of human history and the focal point of the entire Bible and the only path to salvation and be wrong on those points and be considered a good person, let alone a good teacher. And so he drives us to see the truth of who he is. We either accept that he is God and his teachings are from God or we reject him as a dangerous fraud. 
Those are the only two conclusions that an accurate study of Jesus' teaching will lead us to one of those two things. And the decision is ours. What do we think about that evidence? That's not to say that there isn't a process. We see three different reactions from the text, right? We see that there are some who go through this, they examine it, and interestingly, they're the people who are closest to Christ, who spend the most time with him. They have the greatest weight of evidence, don't they? Because they spend every waking hour of every day with him. And they see him, and they hear his teachings, and they see, they have the front row seat to all of his miracles, and they're like, he's God. Then we see the Pharisees, who don't even have enough information to know where Jesus is born. They think, you know, because he grew up in Galilee, he was born in Galilee, and they don't even bother to ask the question, were you born in Galilee? And when one of them stands up and says, let's bring him in and let's get the full facts of who this person is. Let's interview him and understand him for ourselves. They're like, no need. We don't need any more evidence. Because they're not seeking the truth. They're seeking to protect their own preconceived notions about what right and wrong and what religion should be. That is a reaction that many of us have. What's fascinating about that to me too, thinking about the fact that these guys were so connected to the word of God and so blind into understanding who Jesus is, is there's one more ritual that was a part of the Feast of Sukkot. There was a prayer that was read at all of the major Jewish festivals. Every year, it was recited over and over and over again, and it's called the Hallel. And there's a short Hallel and there's a full Hallel because the full Hallel is quite long. And I'm not going to read it for you this morning. But this article says that the Hallel Shalom in Hebrew, or the complete Hallel, consists of all six psalms of the Hallel in their entirety. It is a Jewish prayer recited on the first two nights and days of Pesach, only the first night and day in Israel of Shavuot, all seven days of Sukkot. Sukkot is what we're looking at with the Feast of Tabernacles, right? Every day, the full Hillel was recited as a part of the ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles. And on Shemini Atzeret, and Shimshat Torah, and all the eight days of Hanukkah. How many times a year did they hear these verses recited aloud over and over and over and over again? And in the time where this debate is happening over who Jesus is, they're reading the full thing, which consisted of Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, and 118. That was the full Hallel that was read Every day for eight days is a part of Sukkot. And let me show you how it ends. The end of the full Hillel would be in Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. It's a monument to the hardness and the, the ability of the human heart to just deceive yourself 
as the water's being poured out and as Isaiah 12:3 is being read and as they're seeing these miracles and as he is doing these teachings and as everybody is reacting to who he is and as they're repeating the full halal over and over and over and over again, they're so confident that this man is a fraud while still at the same time unwilling to be intellectually honest about seeking the evidence of who he is. And so many of us do that. So many of us, I did that for years. I had this blanket, you know, sort of broad picture of who Jesus is that had been painted for me by the media, that had been painted for me by a lot of Christians I didn't like very much or have very much respect for. And it really shut me down from even really being curious about who he is. You know, my attitude was what many of your attitudes may have been as well, which was, I don't know what religion is true. I just hope it's not Christianity. That's how I felt. You know? And I was the most confident that that Christianity would be wrong. If anything was wrong, it had to be Christianity. Because a false version of it had been presented to me over and over and over again. A version that really didn't represent the reality of who Jesus is. And that wasn't intellectual enough to present me with evidence that would be compelling, even though God had given so much. So the three reactions we see from the text are come to Christ, reject Christ, or earnestly seek more evidence. That is also a legitimate path and response to what it is that we're talking about. That's right where Nicodemus is. I want to see more. We can't reject this man offhand. We need to look seriously at the evidence because Nicodemus is doing something that many of us fail to do. What he's saying is at the end of the day, I want to know the truth, the truth. And that is noble and good and reasonable as long as it's sincere. Let's pray. Yeah, God, we're grieved by the reality of the evil uh, that we perpetrate, but also that we just see in the world. Our community is grieving with the, um, the murder of these two police officers in Westerville. We just pray for their families, God. We ask if there's a way that we can serve and, and, and love the community during this time that you would show us uh, a way that we can do that, both as an organization and as individuals. And we also um, are sad, God, by the pain and the suffering that is in our lives and the lives of so many others. We just pray for those we know, God, those who have decided that if, if you are real, that you are the cause of that pain. We just pray that they could see the truth of who you are and see your kindness and your mercy and your love and um, open the door to exploration about the facts regarding your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.